0: Um, Now, uh, one of the great Christian thinkers, a man called Thomas Aquinas, um, wrote about hope, and he wrote that hope is positioned between two vices, two problems that human beings tend to. One is what he called presumption, and the other one is despair. By presumption, he meant a kind of human-centered way of presuming that we can just get through life under our own steam a sense of um, the problems of this life aren't too big, or even if they are big, that you know we can do it if we just put our back into it. If we just apply ourselves, employ human ingenuity, technology, reason, then we can get over those problems. And so it becomes very man-centered. But he said ultimately it's presumptuous because it underestimates the seriousness of life's challenges, things like sin and death and despair, which humanity has never been able to fully overcome. Um, and it underestimates... Um, the power of God, and so trust in itself, trust in humanity's own steam and power to do it. But he said the other problem, if you like, presumption, he said, is a kind of, um, uh, I guess, a man-centered hope, a false hope, uh, an excessive hope. But he said the other problem is despair. And so often what happens is we go through something like what we've been through the last two years, COVID, racism, politics, and all the many personal difficulties which we've lived through, and we no longer feel very presumptuous. We no longer feel very hopeful in a human-centered way about the future. It's kind of like the stuffing's been knocked out of us a bit. So what we then tend to is to the other um, side of the coin, which is to despair, and to its kind of social manifestation, which I wonder if you've noticed we Brits are particularly good at, cynicism. And despair says there's no hope, there's no no good future, there's nothing to, to kind of look forward to, The reality of life is bleak, it's difficult, so just face it. Yeah, yeah, sure, we believed in fairy tales when we were younger. We used to think of a happy ever after or a a joyful ending, but now we've grown up, we've become adults, we've lived through COVID, we know that that doesn't exist anymore. There's just difficulty, so make the most, most of it as you can. And Aquinas said, if you're going to actually deal with real hope, you have to navigate a course between those two courses of presumption. And, despair. and what I want to help us with this morning as we look at this passage is see how the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when you really understand, when you really grasp and care about its significance in your life and in the life of a community, it overcomes those problems. It is the antidote to those problems. And it gives you a, a true hope that it can overcome whatever life throws at it. I do not say that lightly. It can overcome whatever life throws at it and get to that future that we long to enjoy. We long to be with, we long to enjoy together. And that's what we see just the new dawn of in this wonderful passage. Now let me just say a little bit about the fact this passage is very, very short and also it has a rather strange ending. Because as Ruth was reading it, you probably wondered if it was a typo and whether we should read further on, or whether the verse really did whether the passage really does end at verse eight. And this has been a bit of a head-scratcher down the ages. People have wondered, did Mark kind of lose the ending? Did the bit of parchment get ripped and you kind of lose the last bit? Because does it really end with verse 8? Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Roll end credits. And what kind of an ending is that? Where's the rhetorical flourish? I mean, what, trembling and silence? That's the end of Mark's gospel? Like I, I really do think Mark's gospel was intended, as Mark wrote it, um, on the testimony of Peter, to end in that way. And let me just say three things about the ending. First of all, um, the ending I think is deliberate. It's a literary device. It's intended to get you scratching your head. It's intended to make you chat afterwards and say, "What do you think? I mean, why do you think it ended like that?" It's there to provoke you. It's not a mistake. It's deliberate to provoke you to think, to provoke you to discuss, and we'll see how that works in a moment. Secondly, if you look at the early church witness, key figures like Clement of Alexandria, um, Oregon, were all unanimous that Mark's Gospel really did end in this way. So the witness of the early church is clear that the um, Mark's Gospel ended this way. Now you see that bit in italics comes afterwards. There were two alternative endings offered up by the early church that clearly thought that a bit had been missed off. And, um, That's unusual. The church very rarely would do that with Scripture, and that's why we don't read that bit now. There's nothing wrong with reading it, but we don't take it as um, canon and part of Scripture. And if you're wondering, well, isn't this just showing us that the Bible's been doctored and changed over the years and see, well, we can't really trust it, let me just um, refer you to the words of one of the most eminent New Testament scholars Um, of uh, of our current era. Actually, a friend of the um, Greek tutor that Mark and I had the privilege of working under or learning under at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford, um, a man called Daniel Wallace, and he wrote this about the New Testament. Meaningful variations, like the end of Mark's gospel, are so rare that they account for less than 1% and as yet raise no questions about any facts of Jesus' life or any of his works or any key doctrines. In other words, given that we're dealing with a 2,000-year-old book, the fact that you've got less than 1% variation makes this unbelievably reliable. You don't need to worry about the reliability of the New Testament. If it raises questions for you afterwards, then feel free to chat to Mark about it, and me, who are happy to chat to me as well, um, and we can talk more about it. But let's get into the text, and um, we're going to look at um, two things, and we're going to look at particularly the way that Mark uses light In the passage to cast the mood over the passage. We're going to go back to verse 42 and notice that it was preparation day, chapter 15, 42. So, as evening approached, so the whole bit from chapter 15, 42 through to chapter 16, verse 2 is all done in the dark. And that's deliberate because this is the darkness of cynicism. And then we're going to see from chapter 16, verse 2 that light comes into the passage very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise and everything from that on happens in the light and so we'll then see the dawn of hope so the darkness of cynicism and then the dawn of hope let's look first of all at the darkness of cynicism verses 42 to 16 are all done in the dark and that is important because it's symbolic Jesus the light of the world the morning star the one who has lit up the pages of history for three years when he came into his public ministry has died and with them, all light has gone. And so everything in these verses is dark, and it's overshadowed with death, the darkness of death. Chapter, 40, sorry, chapter 15, verse 43, Jesus' body is mentioned. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. That's all there is now, just a body, a corpse. Verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Some in the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died, dead, died. Verse 45, he gave the body to Joseph again, the corpse mentioned. Verse 46, Joseph took down the body and placed it in a tomb. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Do you hear the repetition of the words? Body, dead, died, body, body, tomb, where he was laid. It's like a clock striking midnight when you just long for the dawn to come. It's dark. There's a real emphasis here on Jesus' death. Now, partly is to affirm that Jesus really did die. No swoon theory. He didn't just kind of faint on the cross and then you know, had a sip of water and remarkably, having lost all that blood, you know, resurrected himself, you know, kind of. No, no, he really died. He was utterly dead. Notice the repetition of corpse, tomb, body, laid. He did not survive. The Romans were experts at killing people. They didn't make a mistake with Jesus. He really died. But more than just the kind of forensic reality, Mark is conveying the emotional reality to us. What happens when you live a life without the Son of God in it? Death, darkness, bodies, another body, another body. Wasn't it awful during the pandemic just to see the the kind of death count on our news screens? Didn't it just wear you down? Didn't just suck all joy out of every day when you opened up your newsfeed and the first thing you saw was a report on how many people had died? And yet, of course, all it was actually doing was reporting a daily reality for us as humanity, which people die, and it's awful. And we spend so much of our endeavors avoiding it, but when we actually confront it, what are we left with? Darkness. You know, there's scarcely a paragraph of Mark's gospel that doesn't have... The disciples in it, but you notice here, they're not mentioned at all because they're not here. Their despair has led to them running away, fleeing life. They're in a shut room, we'll find out from the other Gospels. The doors locked as if symbolic of the emotional reality that they're inhabiting, a closed reality. Their world that had been so expanded by Jesus has suddenly shrunk very, very small indeed. That's what despair does to you. For anyone of my generation, you'll remember very, very well Nirvana's iconic album, Nevermind, and particularly the album cover. I mean, it came back in the news recently because the guy who was the baby in the swimming pool tried to sue the record label retrospectively saying that he'd had to do psychotherapy because of you know, the fact that he was exposed to public display as a naked baby in a pool. But anyway, he didn't win. Um, you remember the, uh, the album cover? The album cover was a baby in a pool with a $1 bill dangling in front of it and the baby seemingly reaching after the $1 bill. And the album was called Nevermind. And actually Kurt Cobain, and um, particularly him, but if not also the rest of the band kind of inhabited a kind of despairing nihilism, that means a nothingness. They said, and the album was deliberate, the lyrics of the album were deliberate, the choosing of the album cover was deliberate, the naming of the album was deliberate, because they're saying, is this all there is to life? We're like this baby, just pursuing a one dollar bill, trying to get ours before we die. Because if that's all there is to life, Never mind. In other words, it's pointless. It's meaningless. No, it's not pointless, it's not meaningless, we want to cry out. But this is what we're left with if you take the Son of God out of it. If you just confront the brutal realities of life, sin and death and despair and depression, all the Ds of life, what are you left with? The best you can do is shrug your shoulders and say, never mind. And so we tend to a a despair-centered cynicism, which has crept into our society, and dare I say has crept into churches as well, because we're often far more influenced by society than we like to think. But cynicism cannot be the bottom line to reality. Let me just deal with a bit with cynicism. Let me point out three problems with cynicism. First of all, cynicism is, well, let me put it in a a philosophical way. It's metaphysically wrong-minded. Let me put it in a normal way. It's upside-down thinking. Cynicism is upside-down thinking. To say that all there is in life is death, despair, difficulty, depression, denial, all these Ds of life, is exactly to get life the wrong way round. Because no, all of those things, they are, they're the opposite of reality. They're distortions of reality. Reality is goodness. Reality is God. Reality is life. Reality is joy. Reality is hope. All those things that I mentioned, all the Ds of life, they are just distortions of, of the good. The devil has no fundamental reality, he's a distorted angel. Sin has no fundamental reality, it's a distortion of God's law. Evil has no fundamental reality, it's a distortion of the good. Think of it like this, sometimes you're driving down a road and you see a pothole and you go, "Ah, oh, it's a pothole, I hate potholes. Because when you drop your tire into them, bang, and the car's and he jolts you, right? So you think, oh, can't someone fix the pothole? But you could then say, well, avoid that road because there's a pothole in it. But the pothole isn't anything, right? A hole is exactly nothing. It's an absence of something. It's an absence of a road. You get too many potholes, you don't even have a road anymore, right? You just have a, a hole, which is nothing, right? So life is like that. Death, despair, sin, they're potholes in life. But they're not reality. Goodness, God, hope, joy, life. That's the road we want, So yeah, by all means, be upset about the pothole, but don't mistake the pothole for reality. That's getting it the wrong way around. Topsy-turvy thinking. Secondly, cynicism is intellectually lazy. One of the things that fuels cynicism at the moment is our social media. But we can't blame our social media, right? But it certainly fuels it. So the social media pops to the top of our feeds the things which are sensational, which are pithy, which are overstated. So ask yourself, which are you more likely to click on? so-and-so politician is a racist, or so-and-so so politician said a comment out of context which was ill-judged, and subsequently retracted and said sorry for. You know which one you click on, right? Because to be lazy and to be cynical, oh, just another racist politician, is so easy. It's just so lazy. But to do the work, to be charitable, to read, to think, to ask, is there more to this story than that? That takes effort. You know, the Bible's clear on that. It talks about the labor of love, the work of faith, the endurance of hope. In other words, if you're lazy, intellectually or emotionally, you'll always tend to being a cynic, because it's easy. You just click on the link, you share the link, oh, another politician who's, la- who's um, racist, and there it is. So easy, and yet so lazy. Don't be lazy, be better than that. Don't be a cynic. Thirdly, cynicism is personally undemanding. Think of two people looking at a painting in a gallery. One says to the other, what do you think of the painting? First person says, I love the way the light catches that top corner. I think it's just beautiful. You know, when you make a comment like that, part of you extends yourself out into the world, right? You extend yourself, you make yourself vulnerable. Then you turn to the other person, what do you think? I think it's rubbish, mate. Nothing extended, right? You chop the other person down instantly. Suddenly they feel now defensive. But the first person has extended themselves. They've offered themselves up into the world. They've made themselves vulnerable. They've been brave. The second person has done none of that. They've been a cynic. They've just made the cheap comment. They've offered nothing of themselves to the world. They've extended nothing of themselves out into the world. They're just like the disciples in a locked room of their own creation, of their small-mindedness. Our Western world has become so locked in in this cynicism, upside down thinking, intellectually lazy, emotionally unrisk taking. You don't want that. You're better than that. Don't buy into that church. And above all, don't buy into it because it's at odds with the resurrection. Because the wonder of the resurrection is it blows that all apart. It says you can extend yourself. You know the fundamental reality of life that is God and goodness and joy. You will not be intellectually lazy. You know there's always another side to the story. And so you'll do the work. You'll be charitable. You'll listen. You'll give people a chance. That's the community of hope. The darkness of cynicism. Let's look much more encouragingly at the dawn of hope. Chapter 16, verse 2. These are precious words. Read them with with me this morning on this Easter Sunday, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise. They were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed, not surprisingly. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Notice the emphasis on the empty tomb. He's risen. He's not here. See where they laid him. He was here. He's not here anymore. Notice the emphasis on go tell, verse 7. Go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Please notice that the Christian hope, properly understood, is historical. Do you see the names? Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James. Daniel B. Wallace, the um, New Testament scholar that I mentioned earlier on, he's recently in the last four or five years written a paper arguing that a particular fragment that um, has been discovered of New Testament papyrus is properly dated to the early first century, uh, sorry, to the um, later part of this first century, and is a fragment of Mark's Gospel, and it's widely agreed upon by scholars. You know what that means? That means that this Mark's Gospel, the thing we're reading, was in wide circulation. People were reading it, reading the eyewitness testimony of it within a lifetime of these events happening. So there's no Chinese whispers theory that cuts the mustard here. Because if it was made up, why would you put the names? I mean, Mary, the mother of James, that's how you find people in the ancient world. Mary Mary Magdalene, you just go and find her, ask her, did it really happen? You know. Why would you name people? Why would you be specific about when it happened, where it happened, who it happened with? It's historical, that's the point. This has always been a historical account. It's never been a fairy tale or a myth. And hallelujah, because if it's a fairy tale or myth, it can't cut it in the realities of life. Only a resurrection that took place in space, time, and history can deal with your problems in space, time, and your story, right? A myth can't do it. It's just a bit of escapism. And escapism, by definition, doesn't deal with the reality you're going through. Secondly, notice it's supernatural. The young man here is an angel. Very often in Scripture, um, angels appear as human figures. Um, read through the Old Testament and you'll see that. And so you've got a supernatural appearance of an angel because this is a supernatural resurrection. This isn't something that happened naturally. It didn't happen by scientific means. It happened by the power and the intervention of God, the divine entering into the world, just as Jesus was fully divine and fully man. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 5, I receive what I passed on to you as of first importance, That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, this is just the start of the supernatural resurrection appearances. The body is gone here. There's an angel witnessing to it. Very soon, Mary is going to meet Jesus in the garden, and then Jesus is going to appear to the disciples, but not just a one-off. Over a period of over a month, 40 days, regularly to different people at different times and in different places. I was looking at it with my um, kids this morning. Their favorite bit from the, um, from the storybook Bible is this bit where Jesus is eating fish after the resurrection as a resurrected Um, body with his his disciples, and as he wipes the fish away from his mouth, he says to the disciples as he winks, can a ghost do that? (laughs) Don't you imagine as they were doing the washing up, they were kind of dealing with the very reality? I mean, a ghost doesn't give you washing up to do. Sorry for the punchline there, right? I mean, it was so physical, it was so gritty. I'm hungry, get me some food. You're really hungry, you're really here? Yeah, I'm hungry. Can we sit down and have a meal? I mean, at what point does the delusion argument go out the window? Probably by the time you're doing the washing up, right? It's just so physical, it's just so gritty, it's just so earthy. And the resurrection happened in so many times in so many places with so many different people. How do you account for that? It was historical and it was supernatural. And it needs to be supernatural because here's the thing, if it's natural, then it will just be, you know how to overcome life and the difficulties of life? Try harder. Yeah, that's a good news message, isn't it? Try harder. I've tried. It didn't work. I hit rock bottom. I've got nothing left. Put your back into it. That just drives you into the ground. It just drives you into the ground of despair. No, only a supernatural hope can overcome, only a supernatural hope can say to you, no matter what life throws you, no matter how difficult it gets, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's personal tragedy, whether it's the loss of a job, whether it's fear of the future, whether it's overwhelming anxiety, only a supernatural hope can say to you, you don't have to try harder. I've got this. That's what God says to you. I've got this. Give it to me. Don't put it on your shoulder. It will crush you. Give it to me. It's a historical hope. It's a supernatural hope. And lastly, it's a hope that's located in the tomb. Do you notice where this is all taking place? where this joyous celebration is happening? In the tomb. Very early on the first day of the week, verse two, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. Why is the location of the tomb so significant? Because if it doesn't engage, if the hope of the gospel doesn't engage with the worst realities of life, you're always asking the question, can Jesus' resurrection really deal with this? Look, we all know death is the worst. Death is the worst. Death is, if you like, the boogeyman that gives the power to all our fears. We're afraid of disease because we're afraid of dying. We're afraid of relationships going wrong because we're afraid of dying alone. We're afraid of our careers going south because we're afraid of when the final accounting is done, we amount to nothing. Death gives power to all our fears. So God says, fine, I'll take on the hardest one. I'll take on the biggest bully in the playground. I'll defeat him, and then there's no more fear for you. And so the hope came not in spite of the place of difficulty, it came in the place of difficulty. It was hope in the tomb. It was an engagement of reality and hope overcoming that painful reality. That's the hope of the resurrection. And that's why Easter is both about the cross and it's also about the resurrection. Because Easter brings those two together, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Let's take the three big ones, sin, death, and despair. Notice how the cross and the resurrection deal with all three. First of all, sin. On Good Friday, Jesus Christ says, sin is so terrible that you can't morally reform your way out of it. You can't give religious zeal to try to get over it. The only way that sin can be dealt with is if I die for it. And so he does. The reason the lights go out on Good Friday is because sin is so bad that the eternal Son of God is cast into eternal darkness for your sin, for my sin. There's no other way of dealing with sin. He pays the price because you can't, because he won't let you if you're trusting him, because he doesn't want you to, because it's too much for you to bear, because you can't get through it alone. Sin is too serious. Death. Jesus breathed his last on the cross and died. Just think of that for a moment. The one who gave you breath the one who sustains your every breath, the one who called the universe into being. On the cross, He breathed His last. He died so that you don't have to face the terror of death. He died so that you can know there's life. He died so that death can be turned into what the New Testament authors have the audacity to call it, a sleep, a sleep, why? Because just like asleep, there'll be a day, if you trust in Christ, where he says, my friend, wake up. That wasn't the end. No, 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 that wasn't the end. That was just a chapter. No, no, the future is in front of you, the new creation. Life, real life. That was a dress rehearsal. Here's the real thing. He died, the author of life died so that you might know eternal life. And despair Oh, look, we all face times when we say, why? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? What's going on? We've been through too much of that in the last two years, haven't we? On the cross, Jesus took despair on himself. He cried out, why? My my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He embraced despair so that he might take it away from you. So you might never know despair. So that your darkest moments are not rock bottom. Because he says, I've got you. I've got this because the cross was linked to the resurrection. He died for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. You know, sometimes I, I wonder about my sin. I think, Lord, have you really paid for it? Every believer thinks that. Well, you know what you say to yourself? Well, You say, how do you know when a criminal's paid the price? Well, a criminal's paid the price when their sentence is done and when they walk out of the prison a free man. On Good Friday, Jesus paid the price. So on Easter Sunday, the doors of the prison opened up and he walked out a free man he's paid it it's done you don't need to doubt it anymore sin has been dealt with you say okay but has he really overcome death yes death could not hold him the tomb is empty he is risen hallelujah he's overcome death resurrection has won you say what about despair don't Christians feel difficulty in despair and depression yeah they feel difficulty yes you may live a lifetime sadly with depression but you can always know that He will stop you hitting rock bottom. Why? Because He went to rock bottom for you, and He came out the other side in the resurrection. He was risen. He is risen. He reigns now. He's alive now. There is a hope for you. No matter how dark it gets, there's always a dawn. You can get through it, not through your own ingenuity or effort, though you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Don't trust in that. No, through Him. Trust in Him. When it feels too much, when the darkness closes in, look to the dawn of the new light of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. He will get you through. C.S. Lewis, before he became a Christian, used to take walks with his good friend J.R.R. Tolkien. I know they were kind of like a power friendship couple, weren't they? But C.S. Lewis wasn't a Christian at that point, and um, Tolkien was. And C.S. Lewis was an Oxford Don professor, and he was a, a professor in medieval literature. And he loved reading medieval literature, and he used to lament to Tolkien that life was better in the books. He said that medieval literature was full of colour and wonder and people coming back to them from the dead and you know hope. He said, Life's more colourful like this. Why can't real life be like this? He called medieval literature lies breathed through silver. In other words, lovely, just not true. Tolkien, very wisely, as they walked through Magdalen College in Oxford. Um, And it's a lovely walk, by the way, if you go back and enjoy it. Um, As he walked through, Tolkien said to him, have you ever thought there might be such a thing as a true myth? He said, Christianity is a true myth. In other words, it has all of the wonder of the myths. People coming back from the dead. Miracles, joy, happy ever afters, love winning, all the things you long, but here's the punchline. It's true. C.S. Lewis decided to investigate that and became a Christian. He wrote his autobiography, surprised by joy. Oh, my friends, do you know the true myth of Christianity? Do you know the joy, the surprising joy of that true myth? Well, as I close, let me just say a couple of words by application. Let the hope of the resurrection turn your fear into faith, and let the hope of the resurrection turn your silence into witness. Let the hope of the resurrection turn your fear into faith. Look at verse 8 and how it ends. Trembling and bewildered, The women went out and fled from the tomb. They were fearful. But we know they didn't stay fearful. How do we know? Well, partly because we can read the rest of the New Testament, but partly just on Mark's Gospel alone. We know because we wouldn't be reading Mark's Gospel if that was the end, right? They must have found faith because they went to speak about it, and had they not spoken about it, then this would never have been written down. In other words, their fear turned into faith. What turned their fear into faith? The very thing, the resurrection. There are many things you might be afraid of. There are many things you might be afraid of, and Lord knows we've had more reasons to be fearful over the last 24, 48 months, haven't we, than before. But now we have the resurrection, so we don't need to be afraid anymore. Perfect love casts out fear. Can I be slightly anecdotal in my final sermon to you a little bit? As I look to the future, my fear is not so much for ourselves and our family, I guess My fear a little bit, if I'm honest, our anxiety is for the church. Now, please get me wrong, on one level, of course, I'm not anxious. I look at the leadership, I look at Mark, I look at the staff team, I look at, you know, I just think you're in wonderful hands. But then the problem is, as a pastor, you know that it doesn't matter how safe a pair of hands are, if they're human hands, there's always the devil, there's always sin, there's always human weakness. It can undermine the best of people, the best of leadership, and the best of plans. I used to wonder when I read the New Testament how it was that Paul was so anxious. I used to think he's an apostle. Doesn't he know the gospel? How is he so anxious? Then with Mark, we planted a church, and suddenly I knew real anxiety. (laughs) Yeah, it's the very similar anxiety to having children. You wake up in the middle of the night worrying about it. And so as I leave, I do worry. Not because you're not in wonderful hands, but I worry because I know the opposition, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But then I remember the resurrection then I remember that you are a community of hope. Then I remember that Jesus has overcome all fear and I'm not worried anymore. So my confidence as I look to the future for Inspire at St. James is not in the leadership, wonderful as that is. It's not in the staff team, wonderful as they are. It's not in the church family, wonderful as you are. My confidence is in Jesus Christ. He will keep you. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 24. He who called you is faithful and he will do it because he did the resurrection. secondly, Let the hope of the resurrection turn your silence into witness. Verse 8. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. End. What an ending. Again, we know that they must have said something to someone, and they did because the resurrection loosened their tongues. I know witnessing to the gospel in today's day and age in a city like London is a fearful prospect. And I know for many of you, you might never have told someone about it. And for others of you, even though you do tell people about it, you still would prefer most of the time to be silent. So what is it that's going to turn your silence into witness? The resurrection. Because this is good news. This is the best news. Don't you think this is the news that Western society needs? Don't you think this is the, the, the news that London needs, that Clerkenwell needs? Come on, what have we been facing for the last two years? Death an undermining of our human optimism. People haven't got the answers anymore. There is more spiritual openness right now than we've seen possibly in the last two or three generations. And the Ukrainian war is merely serving to underline that. People need this message. You have this message. Don't be selfish with this message. The women were not naturally bold. They were not naturally eloquent, and yet they were the ones who turned history on its head by speaking up about the resurrection. Who knows what a difference it can make if you speak to the people in your life about the resurrection. This is the community of hope, this church here. Don't be silent. Speak about the hope. Be bold with the hope. Not because you're naturally bold. That's easy. Probably because you're naturally unbold. But the hope of the resurrection is going to change your heart and make you speak even when you're fearful and afraid. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for this wonderful message of the resurrection, Lord, for what it did in that early church it's been doing and repeating thousands of times down history, changing fear into faith, changing silence into witness. Please, Lord, help us navigate the way between presumption and despair. And instead, Lord, to trust you and to live out this resurrection life in our own lives and in this community, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.